0: me as we read the word of the Lord to us this morning in Psalm 119, starting in verse 153. And this is the word of the Lord to us. Look upon my affliction and rescue me, for I do not forget your law. Plead my cause and redeem me. Revive me according to your word. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. Great are your testimonies, or your mercies, O Lord. Revive me according to your ordinances. Many are my persecutors and my adversaries, yet I do not turn aside from your testimonies. I behold the treacherous and loathe them, because they do not keep your word. Consider how I love your precepts. Revive me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness. The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. Lord, I pray this morning that we as a people would be revived. We would be quickened by your Holy Spirit. Lord, that you would work in us the work that we need to live joy-filled, God-honoring lives, no matter what circumstances we encounter. And Lord, I pray you would open our ears, cause the soil of our hearts to be ready to receive the seed of your word, that it would take root and bring forth fruit in our lives. pray your Holy Spirit would give me wisdom and discernment, clarity, Lord, speak to each of us. Lord, I pray for our children as well, that you would open their ears to hear your truth. That they would begin to question their relationship with you. Lord, that they would begin to see their need for you. And Father, that you would open their hearts by your Holy Spirit to hear the gospel as your word is preached. We thank you for this, Lord, and we trust that you will be with us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Be seated. It's very interesting that in these psalms that we've been going through, there's a lot of according to. And I want to title this morning's message, Remember, O Lord. Remember, O Lord. Because the psalmist is not telling God he has to do something because he deserves it. We saw that last week, but it's even more evident this week. He's calling upon the Lord to revive him, to give him life, to quicken him from the dead according to his word, according to what God has said. So he's calling God to remember what he said, to remember who he is. Not that God has forgotten, but he is reminding God, as we should be doing when we come to him in the midst of temptation and trial and suffering, of what God has said and who God is. And so, as we begin this section, we see him calling out to the Lord. He's saying, look at me. I don't know where you're at right now. I don't, I don't feel your presence, but look to me. Right? He says, look upon me or, or see my affliction. And in the NSB it says, and rescue me. Literally it is, tear me out of it. Tear me out of my affliction. Rip me out of it. But here, he is asking God to look and see his affliction and take him out. He doesn't just want God to tear him out. He actually wants him to see what he's going through. Oftentimes, I think we miss out on the fact that God does see our affliction. And we just want deliverance. We don't care if God sees our affliction. But the psalmist is is asking for that. And oftentimes for us, what happens when affliction comes? What do we forget? What What is natural... When you're in the midst of a trial, what's the last thing that you remember? Well, it's what the psalmist says he has not forgotten. Right? When in the midst of trial, do you start whining and complaining about, God, if you're here, why aren't you listening? You know, you. it's like we forget that God is God. Maybe I'm just the only one that struggles in when I'm going through suffering. Maybe, Maybe the rest of us don't have this problem, but that is the difference between the psalmist and many who claim to be Christians. That doesn't mean that I always forget, but that's what the devil wants. He brings affliction so we'll forget who God is and what he has said. But the psalmist is saying, see my affliction... Rescue me from it or tear me out of it, because why should he do this? For your law I have not forgotten. His affliction didn't result in forgetfulness. He didn't forget God. He didn't forget who God was and he didn't forget what God had said. I can think to multiple times in my life when it took me a while to realize that that's what I was doing. That I was forgetting God's role in my life and His Word as true. It's easy for the devil to get the victory in our lives if we forget what God has said. If we forget who He is. This is why we must remember and remind the Lord of what he said. This is why meditating on the word and applying the word to our lives is so instrumental in victory over sin. Victory over the devil. Victory over all aspects of a sin-filled world. Another problem is, for many of us, it's not just that we haven't forgotten, we haven't remembered. That may sound like, well, that's the same thing. No, we haven't set to memory those words so that when affliction comes, we can say, No, Satan, you don't have a right in my home. You don't have a right in this situation. God is with me. This is why meditating on the Word is so important again. Why it's putting it to memory. So that when those hard times come, it's kind of like... How many of you all have heard of muscle memory? All of us have probably somewhat. There are things that you do so repetitively that you could do it almost with your eyes closed. Maybe not work on a table saw. That wouldn't be a good idea. (laughs) But there are some things that you do so constantly so that when you get tired and exhausted, your body will automatically do it just because you already know. So, for example, athletes, whatever sport they have, let's say they're a quarterback, they're just going to throw a football for hours, literally, as many times as they can. Why? Because... When it gets down to the end of the game, their arm needs to know how to throw a football when they're tired, exhausted, when they're getting sacked every other play. A basketball player, they're going out and shooting literally hundreds of shots between games. Maybe even more, some of these guys. I mean, spending three or four hours, some of them even before a game, shooting baskets. Why? Because... When they get tired and they're being guarded by the best defender and they get a moment to get that shot up, they want to just be natural. No, no difficulty. If unbelievers will do this for... Well, what can we say? A perishable crown. How much more should we be committing to memory to our mind, and our hearts, the Word of God. I think this is key to this passage because the psalmist is not basing his desire for God to remember him and to remember his Word on lack of knowledge. It is because the psalmist knows God's Word, his promises, his judgments, and his steadfast love that he can... Say to the Lord, according to this. If we do not know the word of God, we will have no weapon in our arsenal to defeat the enemy. The psalmist, if you remember when Jesus was talking to the disciples, he said, Don't worry. I'm going away, but I'm sending the Holy Spirit, and He will bring to remembrance all that I have said. Why? Because they had been hearing these things. And interestingly, Jesus didn't say things, you know, just once. There were many times Jesus said things multiple times to them. And you see that throughout um, the Bible. God teaching the same story again through a different person, through a different situation. Why? Because as human beings, it's easy for us to forget. So I just want to put a situation out there. Let's imagine in an athletic world. You have this guy who's just super athletic, but he, he only takes 10 shots of practice every day. Just 10 shots. Doesn't matter where they are. And then we have this other guy who's, Moderately athletic, but he's taking a 1,000 shots a day. Now, this extremely athletic guy, he has a lot of faith in his athleticism. right? He, he thinks, you know, I'm so much more athletic. He meets this guy and he decides to play one-on-one basketball. I know, sorry ladies, I'm not... Uh, I'm not talking about quilting. I'm not sure if there's quilting competitions, but, um, <laughs> but maybe a baking competition. Um, but, so it's a one-on-one game, and the athletic guy just assumes that he's going to beat this guy based purely on his ability to do so, his innate ability that he hasn't honed. But what's going to happen? When the game gets tough, and this guy who's been practicing all the time, when they, they meet up, the athletic guy may start winning initially. But eventually, the athletic guy is going to get exhausted because his body hasn't been trained to win. He's just been training... You know, I'm just going to rely on my athleticism. The problem is, athleticism, when it gets tired, gets weak. But the guy who has been practicing nonstop every day, putting up—I don't know if you could put up a—I guess you could put up a thousand shots. I don't know how long that would take, but but that guy, when he gets tired, his body knows what to do because it's been trained. It's been trained for victory. And this is just a reminder for me, this is not the main point of this message, is, is but it's a, a a really strong point that I think we should think about as Christians is if we are not training for victory, we will not have it. And the psalmist knows where the victory lies. It lies in the truth of God's word. It doesn't rely on the psalmist's ability to win. It relies upon God and His promises. And so when the affliction comes, He has a stockpile of weaponry to use against the devil. Really, if we want to say this, the psalmist had been stockpiling WMDs for ages. If you don't know that, weapons of mass destruction. He knew what the word said, and he knew the power of God's word. So affliction was not able to destroy his memory, because his memory had been based on truth that he not only had set to memory, but he had been applying to his life. We continue to see this trend where the psalmist is not relying upon himself in Psalm 154, or verse 154. He says, Plead my cause. This word, literally it means contend with my contention. It's it's the same word in Hebrew, it's just a different form of the word. But it's to give us this emphasis. It's the idea of a courtroom. You are my advocate, O God. Plead my cause. Take up the battle for me because I cannot win this case on my own. I need you to advocate before me to the Father. Right we see that in Hebrews come boldly before the throne of grace for we have an advocate with the father He's constantly making intercession for us This is this is courtroom vivid imagery This isn't judge Judy where you plead your own cause This is You're standing before a righteous judge and you are needing redemption. Right? Because he says, plead my cause and redeem me or pay my debt. Satisfy the price of my debt. This word redeem in the Hebrew harkens back to the kinsman-redeemer. If you look with me at Ruth, so turn to Ruth with me. Ruth chapter 3. And it's interesting, Boaz is this kinsman redeemer. But Boaz is different because before he knew who Ruth was, he was acting as a kinsman redeemer. He was protecting Ruth from what happened in the fields. He had told his servants, You guard this woman. You take care of her. Protect this woman. Make sure that you leave extra grain for her to, to pick up. And I, I, Now that I think about it, he actually knew who she was, but he wasn't pursuing her to redeem her at that point. But he, because his heart was right, he desired and had heard about how Ruth had been treating her mother-in-law. Had been caring for her mother-in-law. And so he, as this picture of a kinsman redeemer, is making sure that they have more than enough food. Because when when they when she came home that night, her mother-in-law was like, Where did you get all this food? I'm like, where have you been gleaning? Because Somebody's going to fire their gleaners tomorrow because this is way too much leftovers to be out in the field. And once Naomi realizes that Boaz is field, she says to her in, verse, in chapter 3, My daughter, shall I not seek security for you that it may be well with you? Now, is it not Boaz, our kinsman, with whose maid you were? Behold, he winnows barley at the threshing floor tonight. Wash yourself, therefore, and anoint yourself, and put on your best clothes, and go down to the threshing floor. But do not make yourself known to the man until he has finished eating and drinking. It shall be when he lies down that you shall notice the place where he lies, and you shall go and uncover his feet and lie down, and then he will tell you what you shall do. She said to her, All that... You stay, I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did according to all that her mother-in-law had commanded. When Boaz had eaten and drunk and his heart was merry, he went to lie down at the end of the heap of grain. And she came secretly and uncovered his feet and lay down. It happened in the middle of the night that the man was startled and bent forward, and behold, a woman was lying at his feet. He said, Who are you? She answered, I am Ruth, your maid. So spread your covering over your maid, for you are a close relative. What's she saying? Marry me, and because you're a close relative, that is your right and, honestly, your duty to redeem me. Then he said, May you be blessed of the Lord, my daughter. You have shown your last kindness to be be better than the first by not going after young men, whether poor or rich. So this would assume that Boaz is not a young man, and Ruth is. Now, daughter, do not fear. I will do for you whatever you ask. For all my people in the city know that you are a woman of excellence. Now, it is true I am a close relative, however there is a relative closer than I. Remain this night, and when morning comes, if he will redeem you, good, let him redeem you. This exact same word. That's used in Psalm 119. But if he does not wish to redeem you, then I will redeem you as the Lord lives. Lie down until morning. So we know the story, right? He goes and he, he, he finds this close relative and he says, you know, there's some land here. Would you like to redeem that? And of course the guy's like, yeah, yeah, I want that land. He says, oh, well, there is one little catch. There's this this Moabite woman named Ruth. You you got to marry her. You got to redeem her too. She's she's a part of the land. She she's this is her inheritance by marriage to um these boy this this son of Naomi. And he's like, oh, well, I guess I don't need that land that much. And Boaz ends up being the kinsman redeemer. He takes her as his own wife. And they have a child who ends up being David's grandson or David's grandfather. So I don't think here in Psalm 119 it's an accident that we see this redemption picture being painted here. The psalmist needs someone to protect him. He is is at the end of his power. And so he's asking God to contend for him, to to plead his cause, and to redeem him, to, to bring him into his family. And then he says, Revive me. This is what he wants. Revive me or quicken me. What is David saying? He's saying, I am dead without you. He's saying, give me life. And why would God give him life? Why would God give the psalmist life? Well, the first reason is His promise. The first reason. Because He says, Revive me according to your word. This word, translated word, is literally promise. Which I don't know why you wouldn't translate it promise, personally, but... It's the same thing. When God says he will do something, what will he do? It. God is not a man that he should lie, nor the Son of Man that he should repent. If he says it, he will do it. The question is, do we believe the promises of God? Do we stake our lives upon his promises? Because that's what the psalmist is doing. He's asking God to plead his case and to redeem him, to give him life based on his promise. Not on how good of a person David is. Not based on how many times David has won the victory against the enemies of Israel. Not based upon how many times David has gone to the temple. Not based upon the amount of times David has worshipped before the Lord. No, on the promises of God. And how would he know those if he hadn't put them to memory? It leaves me with this question. Is my life reliant on the promises of God? It's a hard question that we have to to think about. Because if our lives are not reliant and based on the promises of God or founded on the promises of God, what are they based on? Or what is our life based on? It's interesting here. The psalmist isn't asking for an arsenal. He's not saying, Lord, you know what? You know what would give me life? A thousand chariots in my arsenal. Or a thousand horsemen. Or a thousand... um, I just lost the word. Sling, Slingshot men. I don't know how you say it, but men who can throw a, a slingshot really well. No, he is is asking God for life according to God's promise. He's not asking, hey, give me these things, because he knows that the promises of God are the weapon that is incomparably valuable. No gun in our arsenal is more powerful than the promise of God. None. None. You can get one of these nuclear, go buy a nuclear silo with the weapon inside, and it's still not as powerful as the promises of God. Putin can shoot his missiles, but if God has no desire for him to shoot a nuclear missile in a place, it doesn't matter what he does, God's promise is more powerful. It will go off course. God's promises are more faithful than any scientifically proven law in the the history of mankind. Because God does not work within the law of science. He works within the law of His character. And His character says His word is true. I know what I'm about to say is not super, super popular and you may disagree and that's fine. But when my enemy comes against me I have the promises of God. I don't need a shotgun under the pillow or a 9mm in my drawer. Because God is faithful. God's promises are far more valuable than far more powerful than anything that man can make. And the weapons of this world will continually get more and more destructive and powerful. But no matter to what extent the power of man's weapons are, God's word and his promise will always be above and beyond that power i mean we hear about these men who are serving god in nations where it's illegal they go before a firing squad and they can't figure out why these guns that worked five seconds ago to kill this political dissenter won't work on this christian man not saying that god always doesn't allow martyrdom because he does But when God promises something, we must remember that He will do it. Because the alternative is not good. Right? Because look at 155. This is the alternative to trusting upon the promises of God. To turning to God for rescue... And redemption. He says, Salvation is far from the wicked. Salvation. That which we rely on. That that we need. All of us. That is far. It's distant. It's unattainable. And unfortunately, wickedness only serves to increase that distance. The further and further we wallow and and walk into wickedness, the farther and farther away we come or become from salvation. This is the alternative. When we turn to men and their ways, instead of the promises of God, we only increase the distance between us and the Lord. That doesn't mean that there's no hope if we turn to the Lord again. But if we are wicked and we walk in wickedness, we will only get further and further away from the Lord. Why is that? Because... When we are walking in wickedness, what are we doing? We are not following the statutes of God. We're not seeking, right? Because he says here, For they, the reason why salvation is far from the wicked is, For they do not seek your statutes. How many of you, when you have given into temptation and walking in sin, or even prior to Christ getting a hold of you, were seeking God's statutes in the midst of trying to be wicked? I don't know. I, I never have been that way when I wanted to do wicked things. I didn't look, look in the Bible. Okay. God's word says, don't look with lust. Oh, that's, that's no big deal. Let's, let's go do that now. No. I'm not seeking his statutes if I want to sin. I'm, I'm trying to put them out of my remembrance. I'm trying to forget them, much less seek them. Ugh. Not going to happen. This is an act of rebellion against God. This idea of seek is to pursue. They pursue other things instead. They pursue their own selves. What they want to do. They're not pursuing God. They're pursuing whatever they think will give them pleasure and joy and peace. But in reality, it's a lie. Why? Because they aren't remembering the Lord of God. They are not relying on the promises of God. There's many times that I've been sharing the gospel with someone and once you start talking about the commands of God, it's like they shut you off. Especially if they start saying, well, yeah, I do that. Oh, yeah, I do that. The more they realize that they're a sinner, the more they want to get away from remembrance that they're in sin. Because they know that if they hear the commandments and the statutes of God, then their wickedness will no longer be below their radar. Their conscience will begin to remind them, Yeah, that's wrong. Sleeping with your girlfriend is not of God. Sleeping around on your wife is not of God. Looking at pornography is not of God. You name it. Whatever it may be. Lying to my boss about my hours or lying about this or that. Lying to the IRS. Well, that's okay. I mean, IRS is bad, so we can lie to them. No. The Lord says, give to Caesar what is to Caesar's. But the question for us is, what are we seeking? Are we seeking the statutes of God? Because if we aren't, there is a very good chance that we could be led astray and began to walk in wickedness. Again, this all goes back to where does the Word of God come in our lives? What value do we place on it? Because... We can't remind God of His Word if we don't even know what His Word says. We can't say, God, according to your promise, give me life if we, like, uh, which promise? Um, Which promise applies to me? No, because we need to know the Word. But the psalmist doesn't just ask for this based on God's promise. He goes on. In verse 156, he says, Great are your mercies, O Lord. Your mercies are great, Lord. You are beyond compare when it comes to mercy. This word mercies is It can be translated compassion. Your, your compassions are great, O Lord. Or greater your compassions, O Lord. And again, the psalmist says, revive me. Is this, in reading this, I was just r- struck with, he says, revive me, O Lord, three times in this section of this Psalms. right? We see it there in 154 156 and 159. He needs reviving. Is the psalmist following God before this? I believe he's regenerate. But he needs a fresh move of God in his life to bring life not just deliverance from his enemies, but life in, in God. It, it just it continues to point to me that in the book of Acts you see this as well. They're filled with the Spirit, but then God fills them afresh as they ask for courage in their witness. I believe as Christians, especially as charismatic believers that we need to be asking for His reviving in our lives. Constantly. Because we need Him to move freshly in our lives so that we can have victory over the devil and see God's power not only in our lives, but in the community we live in, in our families, and in the world. Just because we speak in tongues does not mean that we don't need reviving. That's the first evidence. It's not the continuing. We need fruit, overabundant fruit, constant fruit of God's work in our lives. That was a complete side note. But just to see this revive me, bring me back to life, give me life, And what does he say? According to your ordinances. So first he says, according to your promises. Now he says, according to your ordinances or your judgments. Again, he's not basing it on his merit or his deserving something. He's not an entitled child. He's not like the world. Well, I deserve to be loved by God. No, actually, you deserve hell. Just as much as I do. But God in His grace, because He is great in mercy, He's great in compassion, He gives me life, not based on who I am, but based on His promises and on His judgments. What He says in His Word. People want to talk about the law of God as though, well, we don't need that anymore. Baloney. Because God's law tells us about who God is. About His love and His grace and His mercy. And the psalmist is not giving up on the judgments of God or the ordinances of God. Instead, he's crying out to God based on those things to have revival. He's reminding God not only of his promises, but also of his judgments and his ordinances. How often do we use that as a reason? For faith that God will do something, how much, how often are we reminding God of what He said in the way of ordinances? I don't think we often do, but there are promises. Just think of um, Deuteronomy. I think it's chapter twenty-eight, the chapter of promises. If you do this, then I will bless, 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 bless. But if you don't. You will be cursed, 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 cursed. That's an ordinance of God. That's a judgment of God. That is God telling us what His will is. Do God's judgment bring us hope? Do His ordinances bring us hope? like His promises do? Or do we just rely on those promises and not on the entirety of God's Word and His character? We need His judgments and ordinances just as much as we need His promises. The psalmist didn't just memorize promises. Those are great. He memorized the Word of God. And so he realizes that God's judgments and ordinances, same word, are a means of life to his life. And he's he's crying out to God, who is great in mercy, to give him life according to those ordinances, those judgments. He goes on, he so he talked about how different salvation is for the wicked. It's far from them. And he again contrasts himself against those who are his enemies. He says, many are my persecutors and my adversaries. Or this, this word persecutors is pursuers. And adversary, obviously, it, another word for enemy. Enemy. So there are many people coming after him who are seeking to destroy him. They're his enemies. But in the midst of that, what does he say? He says, from your testimonies, I do not turn aside. Or I don't swerve away. It, literally, it's, it's as though... He's not stretching out to try to try to hold on to the testimonies and get as far away from God as possible so he can avoid these people. No, he's he's continuing to stay on the path that God has placed him on. He's not trying to avoid the difficulties that God is bringing in his life for his good. He's not swerving away from God's word because it's difficult. Because it's very likely that his pursuers and his adversaries, his enemies, are saying, well, if, if you don't do that, then it'll be okay. Well, you, you could just take, why don't you, uh, oh, you're going to pay cash? Okay, then I'm, I'm just going to, I'll give you a 20% discount. You're like, oh, I know why you're doing that. I've done business with someone like that. They said, "Oh yeah, I'll give you twenty percent off if you pay me in cash." I'm like, "That's not fishy." (laughs) I know what these men are doing. They're they're not going to tell the government that they made money, right? That's that's why they want cash. But what if they tell me? What if they were to tell me, "Oh, you, hey, don't tell anybody that I paid you." such and such sum. And that's the point where as Christians we say, you can be dishonest with the government yourself, but if they come asking me, which they wouldn't because there's no paper trail, but if they come, come asking me, I'm not going to lie for you. I feel like that's kind of what is going on here. Not, not the, all of it, but oftentimes the devil will pursue us in the hope that we will turn aside from God's word that we'll give up, that we'll forget again His Word. Forget what God has said, His testimonies, His, His witness of Himself. That's why we have the Word of God. We see God's faithfulness throughout the generations. From Adam to this very day. God has not stopped being faithful. And we have example after example after example of imperfect people who God saved and preserved and brought out. Even to see out of, one gener- of a whole generation of people, only two men made it into the promised land. That can sometimes cause a lack of hope. But those men did not swerve from God's testimonies, right? They were, they were threatening to stone them because they didn't agree with the other ten spies, right? Caleb and Joshua were willing to trust God, and they almost lost their lives because of it. But they did not back off and say, you know what, let's just agree with them because I don't want to die. I don't I don't want you to get the victory in killing me. So I'm just going to stop saying what I know is true. Isn't that how the devil works? He he wants us to believe that God's word will not work. And if it if we think it's going to work, we're just all going to die. Isn't that how the devil works in your mind? You know, if you trust God this way, you're going to you're going to die and your family's going to go to jail. Well, maybe you've never had that happen, but when when you're personally trusting for the, especially your children's health, it's easy to to go through every little scenario where you get all your kids taken away and you and your wife go to jail. And in the world we live in now, it's even easier. But God is faithful. We must stick to the truth. We must not. And we must be like the psalmist and not swerve or turn aside or avoid the testimonies of the Lord. We need to stick fast. To grasp a hold of them. The psalmist goes on. He says, I have seen those who deal treacherously. And in the NASB it says, and loathe them. Loathing is not a common word. But literally we could say, and I am disgusted. Why is he disgusted? Because they're treacherous towards him? No, he's disgusted. Why? Because your word they have not kept. He's not disgusted because they're treacherous. They're treacherous because they don't keep God's Word. They wouldn't be treacherous, wicked men if they knew and kept God's Word. This is the thing to remember as believers that when an unbeliever does wicked things, it's because they are not a child of God. Not that they should not be punished for their sin, because our country does have laws, thankfully that are sometimes upheld. But, as Christians, we should not be surprised when sinners do what sinners do. When they try to cheat you in your business. They try to lie to you. Well, you said this, and you're like, no, I didn't. Well, I'm going to take you to court if you don't... blah, blah, blah. Well, thankfully... I haven't had them take me to court. But God in His grace is sufficient. But if we are not people of the Word, we will not keep His Word. Because this idea of keep is to guard it. It is is intentional. Keeping the Word is not an accident. No one accidentally follows God. As Christians, we must intentionally follow God. We must seek Him, seek His Word, seek to know Him, have a relationship with Him. Now, can we do this on our own? No, we need the Holy Spirit to open our eyes so that we can see. But there is an intentionality to following God's Word, to guarding it, to keeping it. It is not accidental. No one on this earth accidentally keeps the law of our land. Just think about driving on the interstate. I can't talk because I do go over the speed limit, so maybe I need to be convicted there. Um, But when you're on the interstate, the number of people who actually drive the speed limit is like one in a thousand and it's even worse in the city. Like once it hits like the fifty-five zone, it's like no one is no one is going the speed limit. Like what? What's that? Fifty-five? Is is that even possible to go that slow in a car? <laughs> or on our, our on the street in front of our house, it's thirty-five. But somehow these diesel trucks think it's a it's a a drag race strip, and you're just like, you know the street's less than a mile long, and you're trying to see how fast you can get from one end to the other? <laughs> Not even a mile, I, I, I don't know how, it's probably a quarter mile, but I, I can think of many times where without thinking about it, I'm driving along, especially if it's a, a car I haven't driven before, it's a newer car, and you're just like, you look down and you're like, whoa, I did not, we were out in Colorado and we had a rental, and I was driving and, and I looked down and I'm like, how in the world am I going 90? Just because it rode so smoothly compared to the ve- vehicle we had. I'm just like, oh my, I better slow down. Just not even paying attention. You know, just looking at the scenery. and But it's so easy to fall into sin. It's not easy to keep the law because that is unnatural. We are prone to sin. And so, as Christians, we need to guard the Word. We need to be intentional about how we live. But if we don't know the Word, we're not going to guard it because it it requires both a... Meditation of the word and keeping of the word. Finally, in Psalm 159, or verse 159, the psalmist says, Consider how I love your precepts. Or, see that I have loved your precepts. That's a literal. O Lord... Again, this is just a a strong statement. O Lord, according to your steadfast love, again, revive me. Is the psalmist asking God to revive him based on his own ability? No, this again is hearkening back to the covenant love of God. This is the Hesed love of God again. It's a covenant love. A mercy and grace of God. Not based on our merit or or our um, deserving something. But it's based on God's unchanging love. So the psalmist desires life based on the promises of God. Based on the ordinances or, or judgments of God. And finally, based on the steadfast love of God, he's reminding God of these three things. His promises, his judgments, and his steadfast love. Those are the basis upon which he believes God will give him life, will revive him. This is not the way that Joel Olstein expects God to give life. Right? It's, it's based on if you say this prayer right or if you if you give to this specific pastor then God will bless you a hundredfold. Sorry, King David disagrees. It's not based on who you give money to. It's not based on the works of the flesh. It is based on God's promises. If you desire to see God's work in your life, if you desire to see revival in your life, it will only be based on the promises of God, the ordinances of God, and His steadfast love. It will not be based upon who or what you think you are. And that's not to be Disrespectful or, or to tear you down. It's to be honest with us as believers. We need to know God and His Word. Because it is based on those two things that we have life and have it abundantly. We see a, a difference between the psalmist and and those who are treacherous here too. The psalmist doesn't just keep the word, he loves the word. He loves the precepts of God. Are these three things that the psalmist is reminding the Lord of The reasons that we come to the Lord asking for life. Are they the basis, sorry, the basis upon which we come to the Lord? Because these are all faith based, right? His promises, His ordinances, and His steadfast love. We're, we're basing the fact that God should give us life on the fact that He said He would do it because of what His Word says in every place and based on who God is at, in his character. The psalmist encapsulates all of this in 160. When he says, The sum of your word is truth, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. You want a you want a, a word to sum up this, this message this morning? That's it's right here. This word sum total, translated sum total or sum, is the word epitome that we get. Now, I had to look this up because I haven't used epitome in a long time. Um, but epitome is a person or thing that is a perfect example of a particular quality or type. So think about this. The epitome of God's Word is truth. So, what does that mean? That means that God's Word is the perfect example of truth. That's what the psalmist is saying. There's no other perfect example of truth. other than Christ himself, the word made flesh. But that's what he's saying. He's saying, your word, O God, is the epitome or the perfect example of truth. And, if that's not good enough, he says, and every one of your righteous ordinances is everlasting. So this word ordinances, again, those judgments that he's going to God to give life for him, that's what he's talking about. Those ordinances are everlasting. They don't, they don't stop when the end of the age comes. They didn't start when God created the heavens and the earth. They have been everlasting. They have been as long as God has existed, which is forever. That means that God's word and the ordinances of God that we are memorizing today have been true since before Adam and they'll be true after the apocalypse. In the the end, in heaven. These words are still true. So that means that in heaven I can trust these same words? What? What? Yes, we can still trust these words to be true when we make it to heaven. And yet, we act like, I say we editorially, you may not be like me, but we act like, oh man, I would much rather read, and I'll be honest, I have to be careful about this. I'd much rather read this book or that book, but here are words that will not fail and aren't based on somebody's opinion. These are words that are true from the beginning or before the beginning of time and will be true when none of us are here in this place anymore. When we make it to heaven, these words will still be true because they are the perfect example of truth. So when we bring before God these truths as a basis for our faith that he can give us life we can expect him to move maybe you're not as excited as me but that to me is very exciting that we can trust these words that will not fail that will not end have A lifespan that is not a lifespan, but an eternity span, as Buzz Lightyear says, to infinity and beyond. There's no there's no beginning and no end to the truth of God's word and the faithfulness of those words. You want to stake your life on something that will not be destroyed? Stake it on the Word of God. Stake it on God who does not end. Because He will ever be true. But the weapons of this world, the, the lies that seem like they're tr- right, ever-changing. Maybe packaged differently next year. Maybe packaged differently in a hundred years. There's still lies. They're still not going to be more powerful than the truth of God's Word. The devil wants us to forget the power of God's Word and the eternal truth that they hold. But if we trust God and His Word and make His Word a vital part of our lives, just like eating breakfast, lunch, and dinner, I guarantee you, If God's word is in you, you will experience his life. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can come to you based on your promises, your ordinances, and your loving kindness. Lord, I pray that we, as a church, would make your word a priority In our lives. Meditating on it. Memorizing it. Applying it daily to our lives. Lord cause your word to be our delight. Lord quicken to our hearts. A vision of the everlasting nature of your word. Father that we would constantly compare the everlasting nature of your word to all that this world promises and that we would continually be in awe of what you have said and who you are. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you give it to us. And I pray, Lord, that for myself and each of us, it would become a greater and greater delight with each and every day, every week, every year, that we would grow in our walks with you and desire and delight in your word. Guide us, we pray. Protect and keep us this week according to your word. Teach us, Lord, to apply your word daily to our lives. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.